John Weathersby has decided to preach on Genesis chapter 46, 1 through 27. So if you would turn to your text there, I will read from God's word. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions and visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and their wagons, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their possessions, which they had accumulated in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Egypt. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel, of Jacob and his sons that were coming to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Pelu, Hezron, Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jamil, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the sons of Judah, Er and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamol. The sons of Issachar, Tola and Puva, and Iob and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Zered and Elon and Jehiel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aran with his daughter Dinah, all his sons and his daughters, numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, and Erodai, and Erelah. The sons of Asher, Imna, and Ishva, and Ishvi, and Berea, and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Berai, Hebar, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Bekar and Eshbel, Gera and Naam, Ehi and Rosh, Muppam and Huppam and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham. The sons of Naphtali, Yaziel and Gunai and Jazir and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob came, who came to Egypt, who came out of his loins, excluding the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. This is God's word. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray. We ask you, O God, that you are with us during this message today, that you open our hearts to hear your word, the words that we are meant to understand and to consider, humble ourselves before your word, God. Give us the understanding that we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's a fun list of relatives to read off. Go to the Master Seminary for your demon. You too can do that. It's the whole price of admission. So this morning, we're going to look at this, uh, start to round off this wonderful story of Joseph that occupies such a large portion of Genesis. I mean, it's striking how much space is devoted to this story. Um, if you imagine the, the overall length of the book of Genesis and how long we've been talking about Joseph. It goes back for us for weeks now um, that we've really been tracking his life, tracking this story, and we keep noting that 
it has, the whole story is demonstrative of God's sovereignty. The whole way through, it really, God is in the middle of this story, even though we say it's the story of Joseph. It's the story of how God worked through Joseph's life, how he worked around Joseph's life, and how he made come to pass the things that he said would come to pass. We see the sovereignty of God ring through in this passage. And so what those kinds of things do for us is they help us grow in our faith, they help us grow in our trust, and they help us grow in our abilities to act as we seek to live more and more like Christ in a life where that is difficult. Passages like this are, are helpful. Um, we learn to live more consistently with God's will and God's word. You know, we've noted before that it, it, it's an interesting scenario when you see, as we will today, you see God speaking directly here through a vision to someone, and you, you can almost think, wow, I wish, wish God would speak directly to me like he did to them, forgetting that it was only on occasion, and they were without the Holy Spirit. So I, I would say, frankly, we have more. And so the word can encourage us by this witness, this cloud of witness in the, in the uh, Old Testament, and then we have the Holy Spirit that lives within us in addition to God's revealed word. So with that in mind, I hope we'll jump in. Um, as I studied this passage, I, I just kept coming back to, there's a, a bit of a, a conundrum in this text about the number of people who, who go. And, and I was just going to kind of mention it briefly, but I think we'll dig into it um, a little bit more than I was initially um, intending to. So it doesn't escape me that the result of that will be uh, text messages on why I'm wrong. Uh, so even though Michael is sick, I've already gotten my first message. Um, so just know that this is one of those that we'll look at some, some plausible answers for. Um, we won't resolve it, but we'll find some plausibles. And I think that's okay. I think, I think that's helpful as well. So let's jump in with that in mind then. So to capture where we are in the story, and, and this is uh, touching a little bit on the end of where uh, Pastor John Nicholas was last week, we'll be looking at uh, verses 25 through 28 of Genesis 45. So I don't know, you may have to turn left, you may have to look up, but here's how that reads. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Um, you can almost feel that the pace, the pace, the telling of this story is picking up. The tension is, is, is kind of rising. You know that things are, are getting ready to resolve and you can feel it. And you can almost see they're moving quickly to go get their father. I mean, this must have been very relieving news in some ways to be able to share with their father, even though they knew that this was going to cast them perhaps in a negative light. I think we've moved past all of that. We've had some opportunities for repentance and reconciliation, for deep, deep honesty. So the hard stuff is over, I would say, in a sense, in that regard. If you've ever had to have deeply honest conversations, they're difficult and burdensome. Um, but when they're over, perhaps freeing. And so you can feel the pace of this picking up. And, and what we see is Jacob processing a heck of a revelation. Um, he's lived a pretty good portion of his life here, perhaps 20 years now, two decades, understanding that his son was dead and, and living with the weight of that. And it, it's interesting because you feel the way that he, he, he didn't want to send his, his only son off to, from his favorite wife, and you can just feel the weight of concern that he has. And for them to come back and tell him that your son is still alive, but it describes his heart as going numb. It's interesting. Um, there's been so much deception in this family. He, he almost just can't take maybe to 
to imagine what he's just heard being true, so he's processing some information. Um, needs a minute, maybe, right? And I, I get that. Sometimes I hear something and I just, I need a minute with it, right? I'm not ready to react in the moment. Maybe that's out of experience. I've, I've learned that reacting in the moment for me is, is probably not good. Um, maybe my initial response is, is one that I should be quiet with, perhaps. So I get it. Sometimes I, I need a minute too. And so they start to tell him what Joseph said to them. And then he can maybe go outside and he can see the evidence. He can see that there's wagons that they didn't have before that clearly aren't theirs. <laughs> maybe they're ornate, right? They're coming from, from Pharaoh. Maybe he can kind of start to tell. You have to remember also, Jacob's kind of an old dude here. Um, so, you know, he's... he's getting all this information, he's really thinking about it. When, when, as you get older, your thinking gets a little slower, right? Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've wanted something around the house and I couldn't recall the name of that thing. You know, hand me the, uh, uh, you've been there, right, most of you? Hand me the, uh, the thing, you know, you turn the TV on with it. It's terrible, I don't know what's wrong with me. This is an old man. And they said, look, look at the wagons, you know these aren't ours, you know we didn't buy them along the way, you, you can imagine that we didn't steal them. Right? This is all a result of, of what your son did. And so he needed to see a little bit of evidence for the truth maybe before he acted, which I get. It's a big ask, right? Um, he's, he's comfortable where he is. The whole family's around him. Uh, we see at least 70 people there all kind of living in this spot. And you've got to uproot that organization. That's difficult. That's logistics. I'm, I can't imagine what moving 70 people is like when you're just kind of Hoofing it on your own. You don't call two guys in a truck moving company or go down to U-Haul, right? Like you're pulling this thing off. And, you know, when you're old, you don't want to do much. Like, I, I kind of like to just sit around and stay home. I don't think I'm old yet, but I would prefer to be home to anywhere. Hey, John, don't you want to go do this thing that's really fun? Mm-mm. No, comfortable at home. And so they're asking him to move a many days journey with food and supplies, tents, animals, possessions. So he spends some time thinking about it. Maybe, maybe he's ready to wind down and die. You can imagine that, right, for him? I'm getting pretty old. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tired. He was living in Hebron, which is not too far away from the family tomb. <laughs> you, know, you start getting weird when you're old. You start thinking about buying yourself a burial plot where, where you're going to end up. Start thinking about whether you want to be cremated having weird phone calls to your kids you call them up and you tell them where important things are I had that not too long ago okay here's my i know this is a weird conversation here's everything i want to happen when i die okay I mean, this is strange but go ahead run run through the list with me i guess mom so maybe he's getting ready to die i know i uh, i try to prepare my family pretty regularly for the uh my pending doom I'm pretty sure I'm going to die early and in some surprising way, so I want them to be fully ready for it. Um, so I also make sure I delete memes from my phone pretty regularly um, because there's an intense number of them, and perhaps they're strange, and so I don't want to be judged by that later. So I'm always ready, always ready to die. Just talking to Jim about that this morning, I suggested perhaps he would buy a beautiful mahogany coffin for himself that's available right now on Facebook Marketplace. And uh, he said, do you think it'll keep and I asked him, I said, Jim, how long do you think it needs to keep? <laughs> so maybe, maybe he's, ready to, he's ready to die. He's kind of slowing down. Um, but he snaps too. He's ready to see his son. It's like his, his whole, you can almost tell his whole countenance changes, right? He goes from having a numb heart, just wanting to stay with his stuff, to slowly processing and realizing, okay, he's alive. And I want to I go see him. And so he's, he's ready. And that's where we enter chapter 46. He's, he's become ready. Um, we saw there at the end of, of, of 45, we really see it. It kind of it happens, right? He turns up, as the kids say. Um, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I'll go see him before I die. The boys are probably like, yeah, man, that's what we've been saying this whole time. But glad you're on board. And so now he's ready to pack it up into the uh, wagon train there, go the non-donner party route, and uh, head to Egypt. Verse 46, so Israel took his journey 
With all that he had, he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Um, we see that uh, the ESV will say he, he took his journey. If you have a, a NAS, well, New American, NRSV, LSB, NIV, it probably says something like he set out. Either way, he, he went. He started on his journey. He, he left. And again, we're going to see that this whole narrative is just this, this God-soaked story. Um, yes, this is about this family coming back together. It's about the reconciliation that God had purposed as we looked forward a few weeks ago with Pastor John Nicholas at Genesis 50 and verse 20. This was all God's doing. God had a purpose in, in all of this. It's all a picture of, of God's sovereignty in this whole movement of the story of Joseph that takes from Genesis 37 to 50. So for the math wizards, I'll slow you down. That's 13 chapters of this story is all about God and his sovereignty. He picks up everything that he has and he goes on this journey of consequence. This is a journey of consequence that he's going on. Sometimes I talk about decisions of consequence, right? Or conversations of consequence, but this is a, a journey of consequence. He picks up everything he has. Now, I don't know about if you've ever done a late stage move. I know, actually, I do know that some of you have done a late stage move. Um, and what I mean by that is after, say, 25, moving is different, right? You can't just throw a, a mattress on the top of the car, buy some uh, Heineken Zeros for your friends and a pizza, and move well past that when you have a family, right? Like I know for us, I, I don't even know what would happen if we had to move. We'd need a fleet of semi-trucks, I'm sure. Um, I know each of the kids have done a starry night picture, right? Each one has re re recreated Van Gogh. There's just so many things like that. There's just so much stuff. I mean, you've got a household of seven people, everybody has a bed, and then there's more. Uh, dressers and clothes. I mean, imagine seven people wearing at least, you know, seven shirts, you hope, a week. Um, that's, that's a lot of stuff that you've got to pick up and move. Now, imagine doing that for 70 or 75 people. It's going to be tough. So it's a very, very big decision. I can only imagine what packing is like. I mean, how do you handle this? You just kind of yell out, hey, everybody, we're moving tomorrow. Get ready. Do you hold, hold a meeting? Do you bring everybody around? Do you have like a campfire and say, okay, and there's like a project manager that goes around and makes sure all the, the boxes are tagged as they go on the, the wagon? It's a big thing that they're doing. It's consequential. And so they're coming to Beersheba here from, from Hebron. We, we see the, the word tells us back in Genesis 37, verse 14, that that's where they were. And they're going to head out, and then they're going to get as far as Hebron, and there's a stop. Verse 2, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Hand shall close your eyes. Like every Western movie, right? In the end, somebody dies and they kind of just like pull their eyelids down. It's a requirement of the movie. Just like in a requirement of every movie, you have to get shot right here but not tell anybody. And then at some point you have to reveal it and they have to say, oh, you're really hurt. It's a requirement of the story. So in the same way, he's going to die and his son is going to close his hands. God is comforting him. What grace, right? God could have just said, Get your stuff and keep going, dude. You're not there yet. Why are we, what are we camping? What is this about? Keep going. God takes the time to comfort him and encourage him that he'll be with him, that this is all of his doing, and that his son will help him. He'll see him before he dies, and his son will encourage him into death. I don't know about you, but I kind of take a calm breath with this. I mean, this is just so, so graceful of God to do this for him. Um, again, it's, it's a move of consequence, right? Moving 70 people has got to be pretty wild. Um, doing it on your own without any help, pretty wild. Going from the land of your fathers, where you thought you were supposed to finish it out, and then going off to another land, pretty scary. 
going to see your son that you think is probably alive, but your kids are pranksters, so you're not 100% sure. I mean, if your kids came home and said you had to move somewhere, you'd probably be like, eh, I don't know if I trust you guys. I know I would. And you've met mine. So God takes a, the time to encourage him, saying, I, I'm the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I'll make you to a great nation. I'll go with you. I'll bring you back. And your son that you thought was dead for all this time, he's going he's to close your eyes. He's going to usher you into death. And I think if we're honest, I think probably most of us, if you're above a certain age, most of us have had to make some kind of a decision that's just maybe terrifying, right? Maybe you've had to do something that's so consequential that it just, it freaks you out completely and you feel kind of out there, right, dangling. You, you, you want to think you're probably doing the right thing. All the evidence seems to make sense. Um, maybe, you're, maybe you're a believer when you had to do that and you're like, God, I hope I'm just, I hope God is, this is, one of those things where I'm in God's uh, providential will, not like I'm about to learn a really big lesson from the negative through this decision that he's going to allow me to stupidly make. So greatly encouraging of, of God to steady his mind, um, giving him some peace before stepping out in this decision. I mean, I can imagine the God of creation sitting you down and saying, hey, you know that job that you've been struggling with taking or you know the decision that you're trying to help an adult child make there's almost nothing more terrifying than an adult child by the way you think babies are scary because they hit their face on things or they play in traffic wait till they grow up they're really scary so the god of creation sits him down and says okay buddy it's all right you're gonna be okay i'm with you i want you to do this I'm going to take care of everything. And this is the last time that you'll hear God talk to one of these patriarchs. This is it. It's over. That's the cap. <laughs> so God, by his grace, assures Jacob that he's going to Egypt. He's going to leave the land that was the land of Abraham, fathered, uh, pro uh, promised to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Um, and so God called, calms him down and says, Here, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to make you into a great nation. It's still happening. We're solid on that. Um, I'm going to go down there with you. I'm going to bring you back. Joseph's going to close your eyes. Those are the, the promises that God gives him. Verse 6, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little one, their wives, and their wagons that Pharaoh sent to carry him. And Jacob set out from Beersheba. And the, the Hebrew, so a lot of times there's things that we miss. The translations are great, but there's things that we miss. There's a, a connective there. Um, there was also one in, in, uh, in the first verse, um, chapter 46. The, the, word, the word translated so there connects it to the, the last verse in chapter 45. Because this thing happened, now this thing happened. And so similarly here, because God spoke to Jacob, now he's, now he's off from Beersheba. He's really doing this thing, right? Who knows what was going on in his heart and his mind? Maybe that's why God visits him. Maybe he's going along the way and he's like, all right, headed up to Egypt. It's getting tough. And God comes and visits him. And, and so we get this connective that says, now that this visit from God happened, now he's really, really going from Beersheba. He's really going to Egypt now. Loading up into the families, loading the families up into wagons, journeys packed up with possessions and food. Somebody made pimento cheese sandwiches with white bread, white wonder bread, of course, or whatever your family traveled with. I know mine were too cheap to go anywhere, so we would always be like uh, in a parking lot eating some horrible sandwiches that like my stepmom would make and th throw in the back of the Buick as we burned down the freeway. 70 people you can imagine the kids asking are we there yet you know i wanted to make like like i don't know what kinds of sounds these wagons were being pulled by what kind of animal i don't know i was gonna say a horse but that feels a little american camels maybe big people they're going on this journey loaded down with with food just like the van john nicholas and i saw driving down state street this morning look like he's doing a wheelie the back was full of something like if i'm a police officer i'm pulling that thing over verse six they also took 
livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I love this, right? It's like you kind of feel at some point you're like, okay, I get it. He brought everything. Um, but they're going to really make sure, Moses is going to really make sure that he really, really, really brought everything. His sons, 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 his daughters, his sons, daughters, all his offspring, he brought them with him. There's an interesting disconnect, though, here, because here we read that it was, there were 70 people. Right? 70 people that, that came up to Egypt, went down to Egypt. Um, and the book of Exodus will agree with that, 70 people. The book of Deuteronomy will agree with that, 70 people. Then Steve-O in Acts 7, 75 people. And it's difficult to reconcile why Stephen recounts this story as 75 people in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy all say it's 70. So we're going we're gonna to dance around that just a little bit, and I'll say you can choose your own adventure. Um, but at the end, I think it's a little bit unimportant because I think what's interesting is we get this top-line number that there's some disagreement over, but in the details, we get all the details about who that number was made up of. Uh, Pastor John Nicholas just read off a lot of the names. We know specifically who 66 of those people were, and then there were some others for some other reason. Um, and so we'll talk about what some of those could have been. Um, there's a, a commentator named Kent Hughes. I like him, R. Kent Hughes. I'll just kind of read a little bit of, of what he says here um, on this issue. He says, Because the event was so monumentous, the writer gives an extended list of the 70 who went down to Egypt. His list has definite symmetries. Both Leah and Rachel bear twice as many descendants as their maids. Leah has 33, her maid Zilpha has 16. Rachel has 14, her maid Bilhah has seven. These numbers, um, 33 plus 16 plus 14 plus seven, it equals 70. Um, okay, this is actually kind of funny. This is all me, not R. Kent Hughes. I apologize to R. Kent Hughes. <laughs> Um, so the writer notes 66 make this trip. We just come up with 66 people um, out of that list. Ur and Onan were, were buried in Canaan, you see. Um, Joseph, Manasseh, Ephraim were already in Egypt. So we've got, we've got 66 people that need to go together on this journey. Um, now, again, I said it, it gets even more confusing when we look at, at Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, lists the 70, but includes Jacob, excludes Jacob from that calculation. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 22 includes him in the number. And so most commentators um, agree that there's no way of really resolving this issue. Uh, we just don't have the details. Right? And it's important to remember what Scripture is and what Scripture isn't. Right? Um, scripture is God's revealed word to show his character, his nature, and generally his will for life, for truth, for godliness, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, everything that we need. It's not there to answer our every question. Um, there's a lot of things that Scripture doesn't tell us. It doesn't, you know, it starts off and, and it presumes the existence of God. It never goes and gives you evidence and reason that God exists, it says, in the beginning, this is what God did. It doesn't give you reasons why that would be true. It doesn't participate in evidentiary apologetics with you. Um, it also does not break open why these numbers are difficult to reconcile, but it does give us lots of detail. Um, I think what's helpful to me is the amount of detail it does go into to let you know who all of these people are so that you can kind of understand um, the story. 
uh, honestly, it wouldn't even be necessarily all that helpful to better understand who the, who the missing people were or who they weren't. We just know that their family all ends up in Egypt because God caused it to be so. Um, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 14 is where you'll see it references as 75 people. So it's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting issue. Um, we know that the, that the descendants are 70 in number because of the list that we're provided. We know that Jacob's, Jacob's uh, wives and maidens were a fruitful group. No matter if some had more children than others, they were really fruitful. Um, in fact, interestingly, uh, super fruitful you crank on these numbers 33 16 14 and 7 somebody was really making up for everybody in there so exodus 1 5 uh, would agree with the 70 persons all the descendants of jacob were 70 persons joseph was already in egypt deuteronomy 10 22 your fathers went down to egypt 70 persons and now the lord your god has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven Stephen says, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to our brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Now, some would say that the Septuagint counts these numbers a little bit differently and that perhaps Stephen was referencing from the Septuagint, which certainly makes a little bit of sense. Um, a guy named Eric Lyons would say that it's like uh, giving an answer of two different temperatures for what is the boiling part, point of water. Uh, you could answer in Fahrenheit or Celsius. Maybe you could throw a little Kelvin in there, get interesting. So what is the temperature? Is it, is it 100 Celsius or 212 Fahrenheit? Yes, it is. And so then in, in that conclusion, Jacob's descendants, including his daughters-in-law, are 66 people with two sons of Joseph born in Egypt, Jacob then coming to 70. So if we take those 66 people and add in the daughters-in-law, we have 75, plausible. Another theory would be that um, the Septuagint, interestingly, um, would say 75 in both of our evidence scriptures, the Deuteronomy reference and the Exodus reference as well. So it's, it's at least consistent with itself. So that the Septuagint, by the way, is a uh, translation of the Old Testament into um, another language. That language is Greek, and that Greek was Koine Greek, so very familiar language, so that the uh, Jews of dispersia who were Romanized would be able to access the word. Um, and so perhaps you could suggest that because he was talking to Jewish people who had this perspective um, using Septuagint in their native tongue, he would have read to them and taught from that. There's plenty of evidence that, that um, Jesus would have been teaching from translations. So Stephen then similarly, similarly, easy for you to say, um, would have possibly been speaking from Septuagint and so it would, it would make sense. Um, the word Septuagint itself is like a Greek rephrasing meaning 70. Uh, representing the number of people from each of the tribes. So six people, 12 tribes, 72. Maybe you're asking me why 72, not 70. And I say, dude, leave me alone. It's already been a long morning dealing with numbers. Just kidding. Um, it's just the phrase for 70. It's like saying um, we're on the 10 yard line, your team, if you enjoy uh, football, sports ball, you'd say your team is on the 10 yard line. Maybe they're on the seven, right? It's just a way of describing where they are, red zone, Towards the end, they're on the 10. So this brings up an important point, however, because when we talk about the doctrine of inerrancy, um, it is important to note that we're talking about the autographs, the autographs being the absolute original first thing that someone wrote, being free from error. And so that's where some people would struggle with Stephen referencing something that wasn't um, original. Um, I think that's probably the best resolution is that Stephen was referencing from Septuagint. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, 
it, it really impacts nothing. There's no doctrinal issue that's being touched here. Um, and that's another really helpful thing, actually, about the scriptures. If you imagine um, of the earliest kinds of writings outside of the scripture, Homer's Iliad maybe is close. The first uh, copy out into a translation would have been 500 years after the original was written. Scriptures would have been in 20, 20 some odd years within that window. But if you look at the number of lines that are contested from manuscript to manuscript to manuscript translation, um, that Homer's Iliad is somewhere around 764 contested lines across those translations, whereas the scriptures, which have been translated so much more than that, have maybe some 40 lines of contested. And generally speaking, those are grammatical, sentence ending, um, punctuation kinds of questions. No single element of doctrine is involved in any area of question across scripture. So the things that we know for truth, life, and training in righteousness are under no contention. And so 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 is still completely true, which is that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There is no contention over the word. 70, 75, Septuagint, Hebrew, interesting to talk about. The, it's, the, uh, um, it's a whole uh, textual criticism, is a whole area of, it's an area of science that people um, study the word and compare translations and manuscripts and families to one another, and you can certainly dive deeper into that issue um, if you like, but that's scratching the surface. So if 2 Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, how do we get the knowledge of God? It's not experience from the word. And I'm so happy for that. If, it was, if I had to get knowledge about God from just my experience, I, I would come up with something amorphous and crazy. It would depend on how I feel in any given moment. Um, in one moment, you know, maybe I would be frustrated and so would God. <laughs> Just be a reflection of myself. And so I'm thankful that that's not what we're left to. We, what we have is, is the once written word that's all that we need that shows us God's character and its nature and we can trust it. It's from the word that we know that God is sovereign, that we know that he is merciful that we know that he is both love and lovingness. And I think that last one is important. Um, to know that God is love and lovingness means that God doesn't live up to what it means to be loving and passes the test. His character is what defines what is to be loving. And so it's very interesting to look at things like he comes to this person and, and calms him by telling him what's happening, telling him be confident, telling him you're going to see your son, telling him I'm taking you down, telling him I'll bring you back up. That is loving to do. And so to the issue of Stephen, we say maybe he is speaking to a group of people who have access to the Septuagint, and so he keeps the verbiage consistent to how they understand it. I think that's at least plausible. Um, and so... Pastor John Nicholas, I won't try to add on to what you've done so masterfully with verses 8 through 25. Thank you for reading that. I appreciate it. You did a great job. So as we said earlier, the top line, 70, was helpful, but the details that are given, 18 verses of detail about who are these 66 people, what is this makeup of people, what God is giving us is a great picture of what it meant for them to have to get up from the land promised to the fathers, pack everything in a wagon by faith, go towards this son who he thought for 22 years was dead, be encouraged along the way by God, to be delivered over to this son that we know will wrap up and he'll say all this happened for God's good purposes and will. And that adds to our faith, that we can know what seems like absolute insanity as it's happening to you and as it's happening around you is all in the trusted hand of God. No matter what life circumstance you're in the middle of, God is using it. Romans 8, 28 and 29 would tell us that. You don't have to take my word for it. You could read a book like my good friend LeVar Burton would recommend. God uses it all 
for the good of those called according to his purposes. And so the same is true then here for these folks that while awful things happened in the details, um, these brothers became enraged with one another and, and hated their brother so much that they beat him, perhaps to the point of unconsciousness, threw him in a hole, sold him away as a possession then told their father that he died bringing their sweater home full of animal blood and said, your son's dead. And then that son then went on to be a, a slave and a household slave and God was with him. And that was recognized that God was with him. And so they gave him more, more power and more authority. I think if I could recognize that God was blessing the heck out of someone, I'd give them my things too, right? If I had a financial advisor and you could see that God was blessing everything that financial advisor did, um, I would probably give them everything. Of course, with my luck, the financial advisor's name would be Bernie Madoff, right? And it would all end poorly, but you get the point, right? So God is with him. God is blessing him. God is blessing everything he touches to great degrees. But then he gets thrown in prison. I mean, what, like, what is this life, right? And this guy is still, seems to be thankful, seems to be cognizant of who God is, seems to be cognizant of God's purposes in all of it. He goes to jail he meets someone who realizes he can translate dreams. That someone comes out and hears dreams that needs to translate and doesn't even think about him for a bit, right? And so finally, his brothers have to come to him because the whole land is starving, but God has blessed this person that he's freed from prison who did translate dreams to be really, really organized. And so he's made a, a distribution program to save the whole land by saving up food stuff and distributing those across people. And so now his brothers have to come back to him. He doesn't know, he remembers that they beat him up, threw him in a hole and sold him into slavery that got him in prison and now has him living as an Egyptian with some knuckle rings and a nicely oiled tan skin and a necklace, pretty sweet one. And so he tests his brothers to see, has anything changed with these guys? And we see the brothers for the first time mention God. God has worked all of this and, and, and people are becoming repentant. People are seeing their own sin. People are seeing themselves before God. And, and if you see yourself, a little bit of your character and your nature exposed before a holy, righteous God, the only reaction is repentance. It's not a decision. If you see, if by God's grace, you're allowed to see a little glimpse of who you are at your own core without a holy God impacting that, you repent. That's what happens. And so by God's grace, that occurs. There's repentance. And, and of course, you know, Joseph can't really tell that, so he's testing them a little bit along the way, up until even the, the last moment with, with Reuben and um, taking his little brother back, constantly testing to see if everybody, and finally there's this moment where he realizes that every, everyone's changed. God has done something among us, and I, I want the family to be reunited again. And so he sends off. I, I love that he's constantly sending off, right? He's a masterful delegator, clearly, right? He doesn't say, oh, let me go with you guys down to go get my dad. That would have made things a lot easier, right? Nope, he says, okay, send an entourage. Here's some wagons. You guys come back in like a week. I'll be here with my oil. So they go down in verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. And so it's where we're going to pick up with this group. And, and this is what Pastor John was laughing about before that I decided to study this. Well, next week we'll be in chapter 46, verse 28 through chapter 47 and verse 31. Um, so big chunk, 46, 28 through 47, 31. And you, you'll start to see with the number of books that are in Genesis, we're starting to round this story out. Um, so I think right now, maybe January 14th, I think, it's like our last Sunday in Genesis. That could change. Your mileage may vary. Uh, it's usually Pastor John Nicholas that changes it, though, not me. So if he changes it, then it will change. Otherwise, I will stick to what the schedule is because I'm not smart enough to think outside of my box. Um, but we're coming up on the end of Genesis. I, I hope that encourages you. I was sitting in the airport um, Friday, no, Saturday morning in Detroit. I'm staring at my phone. I have one of those things that happens where I look up and someone's taking my picture, and it's somebody I know. They were about to text me a picture of myself sitting there. 
And so we were talking, and he said he was going through a, uh, um, the book of Genesis with a small group um, now. And uh, his wife, who was with him, asked, she said, do you guys always go through a whole book at a time, or do you ever, like, do series? I said, no, you know, I'm really happy with the way the Holy Spirit has laid it out. We're always in a book. We just follow through books. And so over time, what's really encouraging to me is we'll go through. I mean, if, if you know, some of you aren't going to make it, right? Rick Fox, not going to make it. But if we spend time long enough, the logic would say eventually we're going to study the whole Bible together. And that's encouraging, right? If, like if you're a note taker um, at Calvary in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I used to have a, um, a notebook for every book that we had been through together. You have your own study notes, your own reflections, your own thinking, and your own thoughts. And so as life continues and you get older as we do, you get to go back and see kind of where you were at that station in life, what was happening, what were you thinking about that text. And now as you read it when you're older and more cynical and more bitter and you're becoming conservative instead of cool, you get to re-understand and see that God's word living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword perhaps giving you new application with the same meaning of the same text and what changed not god you right really encouraging i mean i love this approach to the word of god and we go through all of it we don't get to avoid long lists of names unless you're real crafty with this approach right you, you don't get to avoid tough doctrines you don't get to avoid hard problems and we shouldn't the scriptures themselves encourage us to test all things and that means the scripture as well. We, we ought to ask questions of it. It stands that test. If we were afraid to ask a question of the word, it wouldn't be a true word. If we had to be afraid that it might collapse, it wouldn't be the word of God. The word of God logically stands to anything. And so if we were to find some area that we couldn't resolve as a believer, our answer would be, we haven't figured out how to resolve that yet. Excited to see how it's right. So next week, we'll kind of see Jacob winding down. I said I, I felt like he was getting ready to die, kind of there in his, his final days, living near the family tomb, which has got to be a little eye-opening as you get older, knowing it's like it's right up the road here where you're going to go. Um, so I hope through our study, through this study, certainly through the study of this, you know, Joseph's story, um, that you're growing in, in confidence that you can know God from the word. We, we can actually start to understand and see his character from the word. You don't have to guess. You don't even have to ask anyone. It's, it's here. And so that, that gets us through hard portions of life. But it also encourages us through easy portions because I would suggest that easy portions are more difficult. Um, when things are going really well in life, I think we, we tend to go to God less, maybe to our shame. That's um, why so I think it's good to go to God in thanks and be thankful for, for good things because we can be placated away from God in the good times. But in the harder times, in the more difficult times, in the times where we're questioning, where maybe we have some of those terrifying decisions, just looking to the word and seeing God see people through, uh, sometimes see, few people, see people through impossible circumstance is, is encouraging. And so I hope that what we'll see here in Jacob is his being inspired by hope in God, that God could deliver what he said, that God could bring him down to Egypt, that God could bring them back, that his son is alive and that his son would, would close his eyes. He'd see him all the way up through and to his death. They wouldn't be separated again. That was a promise from God and encouraged him. I think we would do well to be encouraged similarly. Um, though God is not whispering in our ear, we have the word. We have, if you need promises from God, you've got you know, a whole Bible full of them. There's promises all over the Bible. I would encourage you, there's, there's books that are called like the promises of God. You can go find those and see what kinds of things are promised by God that remain for us today. Um, it will encourage you and it will grow your hope and grow your trust and allow you to more surely place your faith in God and his revealed word because we've got nothing beyond that, right? Nothing. If, if we were groping in the dark for our decisions without access to God, we would, have, we would just make it up. And sometimes you'd be right and sometimes you'd be wrong. And as a smart guy I know said once, even though you got it right, you're still wrong because you were guessing. 
the uh, wrong way to get at the right answer is guessing. So I'm praying that this story is encouraging to you. I'm praying that all of the book of Genesis has been a great encouragement to you. I pray that it will be as we go on. I I feel that it will. Eventually we'll actually hit and study Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, which will be greatly encouraging, even though you saw it coming since about chapter 37, because John kept mentioning it. But beyond the word of God, we've got nothing. So I encourage you to spend some time here, do some studying here, do some prayer here, find promises here, do a read through the year, whatever you need to do to engage in it and spend more time in it. Um, And and I would also encourage you, you don't have to be a monster who just reads the whole Bible every year. You can go low and slow, and it's just as much or maybe more of a blessing. Um, Pick a book and read it all year. Uh, You know, there's a number of books in here that I find deeply encouraging. I think I've shared with you before, depending where I am in life, I might be in the Psalms. Um, That just means I'm unhappy right? I might be in the Proverbs. That just means I've uh, recently realized I'm an idiot. Um, I, I might just be reveling in God, and so who knows where I'm at, but this word is so great. It's, it's inexhaustible, so I encourage you to spend time in it. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy towards us. Um, we're but dust, which is such a nice way of saying we're dumb. Um, you, you so accurately compare us to sheep, God, we need you. We, you know, we pray to you for, for wisdom and for truth. We pray for you to um, be merciful to us. We thank you for your grace in Christ. If there's anyone who is not a believer this morning, God, we pray that you would allow them to see their own character raw before you in whatever degree necessary to cause the reaction that is repentance. For those of us who believe, God, we thank you for your grace that you've allowed us to have that reaction. And we pray that It would encourage our godly living that your spirit would convict us as a still small voice of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God, would you make us receptive to that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.